Oi. 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 IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express. There's nothing quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from unceded Aboriginal land. And welcome back for another evening of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. I'm really proud to say that tonight is the 25th consecutive live broadcast of the show. And I'm joined in the studio with my conversation partner this evening, Professor Paul Walker. He's the Professor of Architecture at the University of Melbourne, where he teaches architectural history, theory and design. He has written widely about modern and contemporary architecture in Australia and New Zealand, and about British colonial architecture in various locations. Professor Walker is a life member of the Society of Architectural Historians, Australia and New Zealand. His work has appeared in the Journal of Architecture, Fabrications, CLOG, Architecture Australia, Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians and Volume. Professor Paul Walker is the editor and lead author of John Andrews, Architect of Uncommon Sense, Harvard Design Press 2023, and it's just landed, his new book has just landed on Australian shores last week. So we are so lucky to actually have the first Australian radio interview with Professor Paul Walker, and we'll mostly today talk about his book. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ilana. I'm really excited to have you in, and you've got the fabulous fresh, thick copy in front of us on the desk. I'm That's actually right. so surprised to see how dense it is, but it's filled with many beautiful images as well as writing from yourself and contributing authors. Yeah, that's right. Um, we had lots of fun with the images um, and there is a section of um, uh, contemporary photographs of the buildings that remain uh, by a fantastic um, Chicago-based um, uh, for photographer, he told me he's an artist, not an architectural photographer. Um, his name is Noritaka Manami, um, and um, he uh, it was wonderful working with him. Um, his photographs are just stunning. Um, uh, he um, uh, has also taken photographs, a lot of photographs of um, Kisho Kurokawa's work in Japan. Um, and is w- quite well known for that. Um, so and the uh, capsule tower before it was demolished. The right? capsule tower before it was demolished. Um, that uh, was a tragedy. Yes, um, uh, Nori is involved in um, uh, work with the Kurokawa office to um, to uh, to retrieve some of those capsules and tr- tr- try and place them in. Uh, museums and and Norrie would certainly love to um, have one of them placed in an Australian museum because um, of course Kurokawa did work in Melbourne and in Brisbane so um, we'll be trying to pursue that in the next year. Oh that's a nice sneak peek and a wonderful idea I'd love for us to have a museum of architecture in Australia do you think that's something on our horizon? I don't think it is, but uh, I mean, I think that the VC, uh, the um, the NGV and the National Gallery of Australia both have um, increased their um, their commitment to a design um, agenda. Um, um, the NGV over the last few years with its um, Melbourne Design Week or its participation in Melbourne Design Week. Um, so I, I would I would love it to to um, have a more historical view of of um, architectural design and, and because mostly so far it's, it's done wonderful work uh, around contemporary design in Melbourne but I think um, uh, some work looking at um, architectural history in, in Australia and uh, its relationship to other um, architectural cultures internationally would be also fantastic um, to see happen. Oh, watch this face. I can't wait if we really do get a capsule in Melbourne. 
before we run ahead and talk about your book, which I'd love to focus on mostly today, there's a question I love to ask all my guests first. And that's, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Oh, I probably, um, (laughs) the bedroom I shared with my, you know, slightly older sister for the first few years of our lives. Um, I remember um, uh, it had sort of salmon pink walls and um, there was a blocked up fireplace and I, I have this very distinct memory of my sister um, doing sort of play writing on the wall, on these salmon pink walls and my being very fearful of what my parents were going to say when they discovered this. So that's um, a sort of uh, experience of um, slight panic and um, um, a sort of sibling rivalry simultaneously. <laughs> and a desecration of your yes. shared sort of palace there. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Where was this in New Zealand? This was in Christchurch, yeah. So, um, you know, it was, uh, we lived in a, uh, a house of a kind which in New Zealand are called villas. They're big timber houses um, um, built in the period between about 1880 and 1920. Very cold. Uh, Christchurch is a cold city. My mother was from Sydney and um, she always found Christchurch incredibly uncomfortable in winter and um, I really don't think this was the house she should have been living in, (laughs) given that. But anyway, that's how it was. Why architecture? Um, um, I think that like many uh, people who get attracted to architecture, um, it... It has uh, attributes of arts and attributes of science. Um, And um, when I was a teenager, my sister, we were then, you know... Better friends. Well, (laughs) and in separate bedrooms, which probably helped. Um, She uh, had a boyfriend whose father was a prominent architect in Christchurch, um, and when he learned that I was interested or was, was thinking about architecture, he took an interest in me and um, he showed us, uh, the family, you know, these slideshows, which I'm, I'm sure for many people are interminable and boring, or at least in those days they were. Um, but I really appreciated him taking um, time to do that. Um, at the school I went to, when when the um, when the careers people heard I was interested in architecture, they sent me to a civil engineer, um, and um, uh, so the, the school really had no idea of um, what architecture was. Um, but um, uh, this architect Don Cowie was his name, very very important architect in Christchurch uh, in the fifties and sixties. Um, he made a real difference, and I think that you know the, the people taking an interest in young people mentoring them, I think, is a really mm. um, important part of, of um, you know, of uh, finding your way as a, as a young designer. How did you find your way into academia and being a historian, an educator? Well, I think that when I um, studied architecture at the University of Auckland, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, but I guess that I realised I did not have the personality <laughs> attributes that um, I could already see that my more accomplished um, colleagues had. And I, 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 I was very good academically um, and uh, I was encouraged by some of my teachers to consider um, doing further research um, so, uh, and when I when I first finished my professional degree, it was a bad time in New Zealand. It was you know um, economic downturn. There was very little work. Um, so I I got a PhD scholarship, and after I'd finished my PhD, I I did think I would like to work in practice and see what it was like. And um, and I really did enjoy you know those those experiences of practice. I, I really think what is so great about practice is the idea that you work on projects that um, are constantly 
you know, um, going through their life cycle. Um, and so you, 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 you know, you spend months or maybe a year or something on a project and then you're doing something entirely different. Um, I also really like the um, collaborative nature of um, practice, um, collaborating both with people in the office and with other um, other consultants. I thought that was really great because I think a lot of academia by comparison is, um, uh, is much more... Um, isolated and isolating um but um i think that's changing now in academia because you know there's a, there's a lot of focus on trying to build collaborative practices to model those for students i think that's a very good thing and uh, industry research partnerships too yes all of that um but i think my own personality is somewhat introverted so <laughs> i kind of fi- found the um I found that I, after I'd worked in practice for four years, I realised I really would like to go back to academia and I had a chance to do, do so. Fabulous. What piqued your interest in John Andrews? Um, I think that, well, you know, Australia and New Zealand have a sort of standoffish relationship, you know, that, <laughs> and this applies as much in um, architecture as it does in um, other fields and... Um, so when I was a student in Auckland, we did not he- hear a lot about Australian architecture. Um, we heard a lot about American architecture, Japanese architecture, you know, European architecture. Um, but one of my teachers, um, um, Peter Bartlett, a very fine architect um, and professor of architecture, uh, for some reason he showed us images of the John Andrews house at Ugara. Um, the, the house uh, built with um, unpainted corrugated iron. And um, a tower out the middle. T- tower in the middle uh, and four water tanks at its corners. Now, I did not warm to this house at all, but, I, I, you know, it, it just seemed very um, um, kind of ochre and um, um, sort of, um, I don't know, kind of primitive in a way. But... I, I have to say the image of that house stayed with me. It, it kind of um, remained with, with me. So when I um, when I got a job in Melbourne, um, I did decide I would like to do some work on an Australian topic. I I, I felt that would be a a, um, a courteous thing to do to my new country, and um, uh, and so I I remembered this house and I looked around to see what other work had been done on John Andrews um, and of course the, the the most important um, writer on him previously was Jennifer Taylor um, um, uh, associate professor at, at, at the University of Sydney a very fine uh, architectural historian um, and um, but her her book was on Andrews written with him really um, was published um, in the early 1980s, and, and she'd she'd written some other things on him and other and other books, particularly the book on Canberra that she did. Um, but I, I really felt there was a, a, a gap there. Um, uh, Andrews, um, by this time, I, I, when I came to Australia, was you know 1999, and I started working on on trying to get a project on Andrews together in, in the mid 2000s. Um, and so, you know, it was quite a long time since anyone had done any work on Andrews. The last part of his career in the 1980s and the mid to the mid-1990s, no one had written about it all. And I think like a lot of architects who um, um, stayed with a modernist ethos um, during the, 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 the phase of postmodernism, um, the last period of his career was very, very neglected. Um, and, but I, the more I looked at the work, the more I thought it was really interesting. Um, um, you know, he he, uh, and and then I had a chance to meet him, and um, uh, and he reviewed your drafts. Well, we I got to know him very well actually over the years. You know, so we we, we made several attempts to get a grant um, to 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 study him because you know Andrews 
had, of course, spent a lot of his career in North America, and um, based in Canada, but doing work in the United States. Um, so any um, project on his work would, would, would entail some travel or some collaboration with international other international scholars. Um, um, and um, so I had to get grant a grant for it, and um, I made several attempts to write grants. Um, and people told me that this is not going to succeed. There's no interest in this person. Um, however, I stuck with it, and uh, at some point, the Australian Research Research Council relented and gave us a grant. Um, that would have been in 2011, 2012. Um, I met John um, in. Um, Queensland, where he was doing some oral history interviews for the um, State Library of Queensland, which was very busy at that point doing um, oral history of Queensland architects. I mean, uh, John wasn't a Queensland architect, but he his office had been very prominent in doing work in Brisbane. Um, and um, so I was invited by a friend of mine at the University of Queensland to come up and meet John and... Um, I told him I was going to do this <laughs> this um, grant on him, and um, he was somewhat perplexed. He really didn't know what the Australian Research Council was, and um, and I don't think it had much to do with academia since um, uh, Jennifer Taylor had worked with him thirty years previously. Uh, but he, and when we got the grant, um, I have to say he was very. Um, courteous to me um he was at that point living in orange and in inland new south wales um uh, and um i would visit him basically twice a year sometimes three times a year what brought him to orange um john um uh, john was a very committed architect but unlike some architects he did have parts of his life which weren't architecture and one f- very important thing for him was farming so um, in the um, uh, 1970s, um, John was based in Sydney. Um, he lived um, uh, in, in Palm Beach. Um, he, um, and he, uh, he was doing a lot of work in Canberra and he, dro- he would drive to Canberra once a week and, um, and then back to Palm Beach and he bought a, a, a property um, Near Yugara um, in 1973, um, uh, farm property quite large, grazing property, a um, lot of uh, native trees on the property as well, um, and that's where he built this house that I remembered um, from my student days. Um, so, um, and, um, and and one of the things that John did in, in, the, in this pro- at this property was to. Uh, to establish a um, pedigree deer herd. Um, he actually became very involved in deer farming in the 80s and 90s. He was even the president of the Australian Deer Farmers Association. I probably got the title of it wrong, but he was wow. <laughs> very involved in deer farming. Um, and, um, and, and, and as he uh, aged, he uh, reduced his um, involvement in, the, in, in that property, um, but um, he um, bought another property, much smaller, uh, um, near Orange, and then um, and moved to Orange um, for you know to, to get the medical support that older people really need. Um, his wife, who he was very close to, Ro, Rosemary, um, uh, was also doing volunteer work at the Orange Botanical Garden, so they wanted to be there, and they enjoyed it. They they very much enjoyed that place. You went up to see him twice a year. What were those meetings like? Um. Sometimes they were very good humoured. In fact, mostly they were very good humoured. He was a very, he, he was a very funny man. Um, he um, he had a big ego, like many architects do. But he, as I said, he had a life. He did have a life other than um, architecture. He uh, he was always very interested in. Um, uh, my family um, and my children, um, and he was very proud of his own children. Um, and um, but sometimes he got cranky. You no, know? um, he uh, sometimes said, you know, when I asked him questions, 
you know, one of the things you do with oral history is you, you sometimes try to ask the same question in different ways, hoping that it will elicit different responses. Um, and he, he did get um, uh, slightly... Um, um, in your Harvard lecture, you s- and listeners, this is available right. on YouTube. It's really, really fantastic with beautiful drawings showing up on the screen as yeah. well. In, in that Harvard lecture, you say that you sometimes agree to disagree. Yes. Um, what we – we well, as John got to know me, he, he got to know that I was um, – well, well he, he saw me as a person who was genuinely interested um, – uh, he um, was very anxious that, that this project was taking a long time, but I, I really had very little time, and because he was an orange, I really was very slow. Um, but I think he realised that I was trying to take my time to make the, to make the book that was the ultimate outcome. A, a good piece of work um, to dignify him and his story and dignify him with care and and and, um, and I think he came to enjoy my visits. You know, so um, um, would you say you were friends? Yeah, we were, we were, we were friends, um, and um, uh, I, I miss him very much. I mean, he, he w- it was I mean ten years of my life doing this book, and. Um, uh, he was a very um, generous man um, and generous with his time with me, and um, uh, and I think I I think that, that those moments where we disagreed, um, uh, we disagreed as friends, um, and you know we, you know could could get past disagreements. Um, he he sometimes um, he, like I think a lot of older people. He sometimes. Um, would have set narratives that he'd worked out about what he thought was important in his life, um, and um, and he really, for instance, believed that only the buildings that got built mattered. He did not really want to focus on any unbuilt projects, but I felt the unbuilt projects gave us a great deal of insight into um, uh, his development as a as a designer. Um, he also, um, John was also very heavily involved in the Australia, uh, the Australian Council from about 1978 to 1988, um, and in that role, he was instrumental in um, developing exhibitions of um, Australian architecture work, uh, both for international audiences and for local audiences, um, and 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 I felt that. That was very important, a very generous thing that he had done. Uh, he thought it was just completely irrelevant, and 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 we should not have anything on that in the book. But I have, I have a chapter on on him, um, and and he was very generous in, in other public roles he played. I mean, he was um, he was a juror on the. Australian uh, parliamentary comp- parliament competition in 1978, and I think that was one of the things he was most proud of. Um, and um, uh, he 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 really felt the Jugler scheme was um, um, deserved to win, and he was very proud of his role in having done that. Um, perhaps that one is not terribly surprising, but another competition he was involved with. Uh, as chair of the jury was the Hong Kong Peak competition in 1988, where um, he picked Zaha Hadid. Uh, well, he and Rata Izazaki um, picked Zaha Hadid as the winner. And those fabulous suprematist paintings. Am I uh, thinking of the right ones? Yes, yes, you're thinking of those. And Her best work, arguably. <laughs> Some people will say she peaked with those paintings. Well, you know, I, and you know, and and the sort of deconstructivist work was so antipathetical to Andrew's work, and I asked, I asked him several times about this, um, and he always demurred. Um, but I think the most important thing he said about this was, you could see she had talent, and young people deserve to be given chances. Um, that's what he felt, um, and um, it's a very strong moral conviction. Um, I think I don't think he would have ever thought of himself as a moralist or or, or, or you know strongly driven by ethics, but I think in fact he was. Um, uh, he he. One of the things that he did as an architect was um, 
was he retired reasonably early from practice because he felt he had done enough and I think that he also felt that um, um, other architects should be given opportunities that he had enjoyed. Um, he also, um, um, during the 1980s and 1990s, did not enjoy the way Australian architecture became subject to the... Um, Scrutinies of project um, managers, and 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 um, um, you know he 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 always liked working on projects where um, the decision makers were the, the people who who were stumping up the money. Um, so um, uh, and, and he he really didn't like the way a um, um, procurement was heading in this the procurement country. Procurement was yeah. So um, so he and, and because he had this other life this other farm life that he really cared about, um, that he loved really, um, um, he, he, he was quite happy to um, uh, stand back. I think that probably is something he regretted later in his life when he saw other architects of his own generation, uh, like Philip Cox, uh, continuing to um, prosper and, and practice. Um, uh, but, but this was the... the the decision that he had made, um, and um, I had a lot of respect for it. Mm. He sounds like a very humble person that's also quite interested in the economy of a project and the, the simplicity of a project sometimes. Yes. He um, he believe, he very strongly believed that you know a project should be driven by um, uh, one or two clear ideas – um, and um, those ideas were strongly conveyed in um, preliminary drawings to both to members of the office and to um, uh, and to his clients. Um, so uh, he never had a very large office. I think probably at its biggest, it probably had twenty or thirty, maybe, um, and usually more. Usually, it was probably. Uh, around fifteen people. That would be a medium-sized practice in today's numbers. Yes, and 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 that's when he was doing very large projects like the Cameron offices. You know, a, a project in Canberra which brought him back to Australia, which was for four thousand uh, federal bureaucrats. Um, the American Express Tower in Sydney, a forty-story building, which he did. Um, um, Another large project which he did late in his career was the Intelsat headquarters building in Washington, D.C., which um, he won through an international competition. Uh, and again, those projects were done with very, with relatively small teams. Uh, and um, as I said, he would convey to his team um, uh, what he wanted through very clear drawings. Um, and, um, uh, and he really wanted to have members of his team both in the office and his team of um, uh, um, consultants. Um, uh, he liked to work with the same people. Um, he, he built um, long-term um, uh, friendships with consultants. Um, when he, uh, he, he studied uh, at the University of Sydney um, and, and went to the United States to study at Harvard um, in 1957-58. And after Harvard, he got a job in Canada. Uh, and one of, the, one of the firm friendships he maintained for the rest of his life was with a landscape architect called Dick Strong, who he met um, in the practice they both worked in in Toronto. And... Um, um, and really the very last um, practice work that John did um, was, again, with Dick Strong. You know, in the, um, in the early 2000s, uh, Dick Strong was at that point a consultant to the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, and he brought John in to do site planning work. Um, um, and, um, um, you know, so, you know, the, so John maintained these professional and personal relationships over a very long period, uh, built trust um, and got to know the, um, the habits and the um, weaknesses and the strengths of the people he worked with and, um, and could work with those um, without there being uh, kind of unknown <laughs> quantities. I'm sensing uh, this repeating theme, part of the alliteration of repetition and of that predictable consistency. 
both in the way he structured his teams and in the architecture in a way. That's that's absolutely right. That, that's certainly true in the architecture as well. He did not believe that um, um, every project should be invented anew. Um, he felt that the problems or the opportunities that architects had were often very common. Um, he designed a number of hotels, for instance, and if you look at those hotel uh, plans, you'll see that the same octagonal room form is used in them. He felt that he had found an optimal um, design for a, for a, a kind of hotel room, so he, he didn't want to reinvent that form. Um, equally, um, the octagonal pods of office space that he, he um, developed in the 1970s in a project he did for Canberra, which was never built, or only partially built, I should say, um, he almost repeated that um, plan uh, almost exactly for um, um, Intelsat in Washington. He felt that a competition was um, he had you know it was an invited competition. There were eight other competitors. He felt he had a chance, one on eight chance, so he wasn't going to spend a lot of time on it. So recycling a design uh, was the right thing to do. Um, and then what he would do is um, he would inflect these standard forms, standard plan forms that he'd come up. To, come up with um, in his career, he would inflect them according to the local circumstances. So um, this project originally done for Canberra, the, um, the Callum offices, not built as I said, um, uh, gets repeated in Washington, um, but um, the courtyards at Callum um, and Washington become enclosed to deal with the cold Washington climate. Um, and um, he used those courtyards also, again, they were planted by Dick Strong, his long-term best pal from Toronto, um, and, um, uh, and, 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 uh, and um, worked uh, with a, um, a services engineer to use the atrium spaces made by these um, enclosed courtyards to... Uh, to um, you know, give uh, um, uh, to develop the, the, the environmental performance of the whole project. So he he would repeat forms, but but they were always inflected according to to the circumstance of the next project. Working out of his own catalogue in a way, but was it acceptable at the time, or quite accepted or common? to recycle ideas because in our sort of contemporary culture at the moment it would be somewhat frowned upon, especially some, if a firm is known to be uh, co commonly repeating ideas. It's not, not in fashion at the moment. Well, um, I don't think it was in fashion when he did it either. Oh, really? Um, um, on the success of Intelsat, he was invited into another international competition in Washington for the World Bank, um, uh, a... That competition was won by the New York firm Con Pedersen Fox, uh, um, and uh, one of the judges on that competition was um, the French architect Jean Nouvel, oh. um, who um, uh, asked Andrews why he always repeated octagonal forms um, because these octagonal forms had reappeared in the World Bank project, um, again inflected, uh, you know, so the the, the the atrium spaces between them much tighter in the World Bank uh, scheme than at Intelsat because it was a much tighter site. Um, uh, but, you know, Nouvelle, who I think is an architect, um, always invents um, from scratch with every project, um, uh, did not think that, um, <laughs> that um, Andrew should be um, uh, developing projects the way he did from um, one to another, um, developing the, the same concepts. Um, and and um, uh, as I say, I don't think Andrew's repeated things, but I think he uh, developed them. Um, he developed a repertoire of things that he felt were working. And in some ways, building on those ideas through the scientific lens in a way, some of his projects are very technological or very technologically minded, whether or not critics could understand it quite at the time. Well, one of the things that John um, did uh, is that he um, also worked with, um, uh, as he continuously worked with the same um, landscape architect, he continuously worked with the same um, services engineering firm. Uh, and um, so he developed projects which um, um, 
increasingly adopted more and more technological approaches to um, to environmental performance. Um, he was always very interested in environmental performance from his early years in Toronto because he um, he found uh, the climate of Toronto um, very demanding. Um, you know, for a, a, a kid from the North Shore of Sydney, you know, used to the beach. Um, Toronto was um, pretty um, uh, unpleasant <laughs> in the winter. Um, so. Um, you know, so he always had a propensity to think about how to use form to develop um, environmental or to um, facilitate improved environmental performance. Uh, and uh, uh, on his return to Australia, he um, um, he developed a relationship with a, a, a service engineer whose name escapes me right now, I'm afraid, um, but uh, continued to work with him and develop more and more technological systems to. Um, to manage the energy use in the building and um, environment, environmental comfort. So one of the things that happened with um, Intelsat um, uh, was that it was um, um, it, it was a scheme where the um, client, a high tech client, you know, Intelsat was um, an organisation that um, launched and managed um, satellite um, uh, communication systems. Uh, this is when all of that was in the hands of um, international intergovernmental organisations, not in private hands. Um, and Intelsat had wanted a, a kind of language for their building which reflected their own technological prowess, I guess. Now, Andrew certainly didn't you know, give them a, a, the, the image of a spaceship, um, but in fact um, the, the high-tech kind of um, uh, external treatments that he um, um, designed for Intelsat meant that critics, in fact, saw it as, as, <laughs> as an, a building attempting to be a spaceship. That's I mean. awesome. And what was the cultural moment at the time? Like, What sort of films were out and movies? What year was that? Well, um, this was um, the years of uh, Star Wars and um, it's about after 2001, The Space Odyssey. Um, and um, um, So the enthusiasm was quite high to take yes, that reading. Yes, yes, yes. It was also um, the, the, the years of um, a- Alien um, <laughs> and the year of Blade Runner. I mean, I, so I, I, I think it's very interesting that the critics who made these um, connections to cinematic spaceships um, uh, only did so to ones where, where with a sort of positive story. You know, Alien and Blade Runner were never mentioned. But do you um, think they were over attributing a little bit? I love Blade Runner. Um, I think one of the problems with buildings, uh, as they've been high, become highly technologized in their performance, um, and and you know, since the 1980s when Andrews was designing Intelsat, this is this has only increased. Um, I think many critics are not, um, I don't think, have the skills or the competence to uh, assess the highly technical performance that buildings um, have. Uh, what critics are still good at doing is understanding the building's, building's um, humanistic elements Um uh, but I think when Andrews designed uh, Intelsat, the, 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 the American architectural critics who wrote about it were struggling to find a way of maintaining their own um, um, uh, personal reckoning with it, their well, own understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm, I write criticism for Architecture Australia, so I recognise the challenge of of doing um, you know criticism. I think it's a it's 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 a, it's a it's not an easy task sometimes. Mm, absolutely. The buildings, you would have visited them in person as well. Did you get a chance to come and experience them? How have they, how, what shape are they and how they lived? Well, the North American projects are mostly in good shape. Some of them are not because um, uh, sometimes, um, you know, uh, the circumstances for which buildings are built um, sometimes change. One of Andrew's most important projects in the in the United States was um, uh, terminals in the port of Miami for cruise ships, um, and I saw the last one of those terminals when it was in disuse, um, used as a storage facility. Only very beautiful building, 
Um, Andrews um, uh, didn't regret this change because he knew that cruise ships had changed themselves. They, they, they basically had tripled in size or quadrupled in size from the time when he was d- designing. Um, for and he had the tech knowledge to kind of cope with that yes. change as well. Yes, he, he, he thought that was fine. What he didn't uh, find um, very tolerable was buildings being demolished for arbitrary reasons or political reasons. Um, so he very much regretted the, the de- demolition of the Sydney um, Convention Centre um, um, because basically the new Convention Centre offers very little facility uh, beyond what his facility had offered if you operated it with the Sydney um, Entertainment Centre, which allowed venues of up to 12,000 people. So the reason the New South Wales government demolished the Sydney Convention Centre was reputedly because um, the plenary space could only take 3,500 people. But as I say, the Entertainment Centre just next door could take 12,000 people. So... The building was demolished for political reasons, really, to um, to um, um, assuage the interests of the New South Wales construction industry. Mm. Um, and Andrews was very angry with this. Um, I think that in North America there is um, a slightly more uh, nuanced view of um, buildings from the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, so currently, um, Andrew's um, um, a building for the um, library, the Weldon Library at the University of Western Ontario, um, a building he, he built um, from about 1968, opened in 1972. That's been going through a renovation um, done by Perkins & Will, a very fine, long-established modernist firm, and um, the photographs I've seen of the renovation show a building with, you know, absolute fidelity to Andrew's vision, uh, but introducing new technologies which are needed in libraries, um, improved, um, um, you know, improved surface materials where, you know, carpet is worn out. While in Australia this year, um, one of Andrew's very best university buildings, um, the Australian um, School of Environmental Studies at Griffith University, has been demolished by oh, no. a university that claims to um, um, wear its environmental credentials on its sleeve. I mean, it's just absurd. Um, this was Andrew's probably the best building he did had done in Brisbane. There was very little reason for demolishing it that I could see, uh, and um, um, and you know there was quite an uh, attempt by very well credentialed heritage um, professionals in uh, Brisbane to show um, Griffith how they could re- reuse the building, but they simply disregarded it. And that still wasn't enough to save it. The no, no. politics won no. out in that moment. Um, so you know y- you look at the North American experience. Um, and the Australian experience and the North American experience is the buildings are, are looked after better um, and um, people continue to care for them. One of his most important projects, or the one that made his name as an independent architect, uh, was Scarborough College, um, uh, completed in 1965 66. Uh, on the 50th anniversary of the completion of that building, um, the University of Toronto renamed it the Andrews Building. Mm. You know, so I mean, I don't think there are many buildings in Australia which named bear up. the name of the architect. Yeah, that's you know. incredible. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Oh, yeah. so he, you know, he he was. Um, he was disappointed in the trajectory of his buildings late in his life. As I said, he understood when buildings had to go because the purpose for which they was had been built was gone, but he did not think it reasonable that buildings were demolished um, for, um, you know, kind of reasons of taste or fashion or, um, or political expediency. Completely antithetical, also to his environmental inclinations. Yes, he 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 certainly became very uh, he became very aware late in his life of the um, of the um, environmental um, 
costs of concrete. Concrete had been his favourite material. I mean, he was 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 very he was very overt about that. He he like many architects of his generation, he was strongly influenced by the late work of Le Corbusier. Um, and um, uh, you know his teacher at at um, at, uh, at Harvard was Jose Luis Sert, who was a Catalan architect, who was a friend of um, Le Corbusier's. Um, and uh, you know, but but as I say, late in his life, um, Andrews became aware of the, uh, at least tangentially, of the um, environmental costs that concrete had, and he was and he knew that um, um, these. Uh, this mitigated against any demolition of concrete buildings. Hmm. In your in your Harvard lecture, you suggested he was uh, reluctant to admit to any sort of influence or mentors or peers, pe- people who informed his designs in any way. Well, I think that's true of any of most architects, and particularly architects of that generation who were um, very strongly imbued with the view that originality was the key um, a key attribute of an architect. Um, however, Andrews did uh, admit um, to uh, the influence of um, um, of Cert. Uh, Cert's teacher, Cert as a teacher, um, very strongly um, had the view that uh, architecture was an urban discipline uh, so he wanted his students to um, to locate their buildings in an urban um, uh, a broader urban dimension uh, and that was something which was very important for Andrews for the rest of his career he he however wasn't that impressed by Cert's work Um uh, Andrews um, did a, a, a big tour of, of Europe and um, and Asia uh, in 1961 after he'd spent a few years working in Toronto and um, he uh, on that tour he, he went out of his way to go to Baghdad to see Sert's um, building for the American embassy there and he was very disappointed in it. But mm. But nevertheless, Sert remained an important influence on him, as I say, because of the, the, the lessons around... Urban design that um, um, that, um, uh, that 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 he had promulgated very strongly at Harvard. Um, uh, Andrews was influenced by late Le Corbusier. Um, um, as I got to know Andrews, he was a little more forthcoming about these things. And one day he whispered to me, "If you want to understand the staircases at Scarborough." Look at the um, staircases um, at on Le Corbusier's secretariat at Chandigarh, um, which he had gone to see in 1961 when he, when that, that building was, I think, either just finished or still under construction. Um, another architect who was very influential on him when he was young, but I think the influence waned, was um, Paul Rudolph, a very eminent American architect in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he had sought work with uh, Rudolph, but um, Rudolph didn't have a job for him and, in fact, told him to go and work for um, the firm in Toronto he, he went to work with, um, John B. Parkin. Um, as I said, I think the influence of um, Rudolph waned, um, and uh, but I think another architect who was probably fairly important to him was um, James Sterling, the British architect, um, they met very occasionally uh, after Sterling started teaching at Yale University in 1968. Um, uh, Sterling visited um, Andrew's office in Toronto. Um, and I think that, and, and if you look at their work, um, there's a lot of common themes. Um, um, I, I don't, I'm not sure whether you could say there's influence there or there's sort of a kind of convergence in their work. Um, um, but uh, and, and I think that um, Sterling also, in my view, um, was influenced by Andrews. Um, uh, one, of, uh, one of Andrews' most um, significant buildings and the building that took me to Harvard was um, the School of Design for Harvard University, um, Gund Hall, which Andrews designed from 1968 and finished in 1972, and uh, immediately across the road from 
um, Gund Hall is uh, a building designed by Sterling uh, a few years later uh, for the Sackler Museum, um, and, um, and it's a postmodern building. But um, um, the Gund Hall is organised around a series of um, um, straight runs of staircases that go up four storeys up the building. And um, in, Sackler, in the Sackler Museum, there is a similarly a stair run um, of, of a straight run of stairs of going up four stories. And I really cannot believe that, that, uh, that the gun didn't um, have some um, uh, influence in Sterling's work, or at least Sterling, I think, was, was acknowledging Andrew's um, project because there are many, many ways that um, Sterling could have um, organized that building. It couldn't have been in a silo. I'm really curious in this almost diametrically opposite culture because he was averse to any sort of acknowledgement of mentors or influence, comfortable with repeating ideas. For students today are taught, do not repeat ideas, but be bold and brave and clear about your mentors because you need precedent and that there's nothing new anymore. So it's very... um. Contrasting to me, really, there's a different universe, let alone all these procurement joys. It sounds like he was working in firms with men in suits, just surrounding a completely different corporate culture. Client was making decisions like this is a different universe. Well, Andrew certainly um, was very focused on the culture of his office. Um, uh, when he'd worked in Toronto for John B. Parkin, John B. Parkin was. Um, a firm of corporate modernists, um, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the men in the firm, I think it probably were all men at that point, were, were required to wear suits. They were forbidden to have beards. They weren't even allowed to wear knitted ties. They had to be, you know, um, a proper... A scandal. You know, uh, Andrews had a very dishevelled car um, at that point um, and um, uh, the John B. Parkin folk required him to park the car out the back of the office so it wouldn't sully um, the appearance of their office building, which was a neat modernist box. Um, when Andrews established his own office in Toronto um, um, uh, after, he, after this trip that he'd made in 1961-62, um, he established it in a, in a much more collaborative kind of atmosphere um, um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that there were drinks on Friday nights um, and uh, everyone, you know, kind of, he, he really enjoyed a relaxed atmosphere. That's a bit more contemporary. That's a bit more familiar. Um, and, and again, when he, when he returned to Sydney, um, he decided to um, set up his office in um, Palm Beach. Uh, he um, bought a... Uh, ship's chandlers um, to um, so he could get the premises upstairs for his office, but he actually owned the the, the chandlery business and the, and the, the 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 he continued to somehow be proprietor of that as well as running an architecture office, um, and um, and and the 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 men and women who worked in the office um, were able to um, um, you know work in a very relaxed way. Um, one of the reasons to be um, North of Sydney, like this, was he 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 had the view that um, if he managed to get his clients or um, or consultants up from Central Sydney, um, um, you know Palm Beach, it's forty kilometres north of Sydney. It was it was too too big a trip for them not to spend a good amount of time, you know, maybe a whole day there. So he would get them in, in a much more relaxed atmosphere than um, if he was working in central Sydney and going to hour-long meetings, you know, um, a couple of blocks away. So he, you know, this, this, was, this was about his own personal taste and, and his um, uh, wishing to live a very relaxed life, but it was also a, a kind of neat strategy to get the attention of um, the people he needed to work with um, on projects to to really focus on that project and not be distracted by a whole lot of other things um, that they might have to run away to see to. What a man of multitudes. No wonder he kept you busy for more than a decade. What lessons are there in, in John Andrews or in your book for students at the moment? Um, well, um, 
Curiously, I, I've just done a studio myself with um, graduating students at the University of Melbourne, um, and uh, we were looking at the suburbs, um, and we were, we were looking at projects um, which might be associated with the suburban rail loop stations that um, the state government here is planning to build, um, and in particular we looked at um, uh, the suburban rail loop stations at Clayton and at Monash, and the Monash, Univers- the Monash station will be just north of the Monash campus, uh, and um, some of my students um, decided to look at um, student housing at Monash uh, because you know the north of the Monash campus is where that housing is located, and some of it's quite run down, um, and um, and. You know we, what we what we found was really the, the 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 student housing that Andrews had designed both in Toronto and um, and and in Canberra particularly uh, w- was a very good model for how to do student housing now. Um, so um, in, in, in the mid sixties, he did a very large project for student housing at the University of Guelph, um, which is about an hour outside Toronto. Um, and that, and uh, the, the consultant on the housing consultant on that was um, the young Evan Walker, who was later to be a, a, a Labor um, Minister of Planning here in, in, in Melbourne, his hometown. Uh, and Evan Walker had done this uh, project um, to develop um, um, uh, guidelines for student housing for um, universities in uh, in Toronto, particularly the university particularly the University of Toronto, and Andrews followed these guidelines um, in his housing work at um, Guelph and then another university in Canada called Brock and then um, at um, uh, Toad Hall for the Australian National University and for the housing that he did at the what is currently the University of Canberra. And so what Andrews did was he, uh, following Evan Walker's guidelines, was to um, orchestrate um, the uh, student dormitories into groups of um, six uh, student rooms uh, with shared facilities between them, um, while the uh, very large facility built at Guelph um, did have dining rooms associated with it. The other um, housing projects that Andrews didn't did um, did not have um, such things because he felt the students, again, following Evan Walker's guidelines, the students should become self-catering. So these... these um, um, The small house model. It's a stu- lot like we plan nursing homes now. <laughs> well, well, so what we... So what we did is, you know, what these students working with me did was, um, because I knew this this stuff of Andrews, um, they found that that was the that was still a very good model for um, imagining how socially you could orchestrate student housing. Um, Andrews had a very strong social um, imagination around architecture. He felt that um, um, that um, um, you know that. Uh, uh, the spaces of occupation should have a sort of sense of um, coherence in them. So this is really where the octagons come from because they establish a kind of um, a space of inhabitation for a group of office workers. Um, uh, and and so I think I think my own view is maybe not octagons, <laughs> but but certainly this idea that you have to think of the workspace as a coherent unit that has to be architecturally expressed as having some individuality of its own so that you encourage, um, um, uh, you know, workers to feel identity with the group that they belong to. I mean, I think that I think that a lot of um, um, organisational management would, would take this view, but Andrews felt that it needed to be expressed architecturally. Spatially. Spatially, very much so. Yeah. Well, I'm mindful of the time. I want to ask my last question. And that's what gives you hope? What gives me hope is to see very intelligent students um, doing very fine work. Um, um, as, you know, the students who work with me this semester did. And um, and I, I, I feel very encouraged by um, their... Um, the, the, the ethics that they have around, um, 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 you know, the environment and work practices. Um, I know that you've, 
you're posting this week for Parlour. I mean, my students are very aware of um, the, the work that Parlour does. Um, several of my students in this past semester have chosen to do retrofit work uh, rather than new work because um, they know that, um, um, as Andrews came to learn late in his life, that um, that demolishing buildings is environmentally, um, um, you know, polluting, polluting, yeah. massive and, contributor to landfill. Yeah, and and so I, I I feel very encouraged when students take these issues and and do work and wear them like that. They, 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 you know, they don't become um, overwhelmed by the issues. They just they just kind of. Find they work that, through it. They work through them. And they might not come to the perfect outcome, but they come to a, an outcome which is better um, than I think students would have done um, 15 or 20 years ago because I think students then were much less aware of these issues. So the ability of students to take on um, um, th these responsibilities that we all have and to continue to work through them and to remain optimistic about um, architecture as a practice, I, I find that's very rewarding. Mm. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Uh, hello, this is Kieran Carroll, uh, the playwright from Edith Vale, and you're on Radio Carum, a great station that gives many, many voices a chance across the city of Kingston. Go Radio Carum. <laughs>